We are returning to our series on confessional apologetics, and we have subtitled this, just to remind you, the concept of confessional theology as the philosophical method of revelational presuppositional apologetics. And I think it will become clear to you why that we say we are to build a philosophical system based on our theology. It is foundational, essential to our faith and practice. It is an answer to the issues of life, to the things of life. Theology explains the why that things are the way they are. Science doesn't do that. Man wants science to do that. He wants a utopianism built off of what he believes is the savior of mankind, the scientific method. But science, as my old professor used to say, Dr. Gordon Clark, it's good for building cars and refrigerators but it doesn't do very good when it tries to explain the why. It's the how. We are looking at the why. Why are things the way they are? And that's very important for us to understand that. Our sermon text is 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. Again, Paul writing here says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Pattern identifies one, a system of thought. And he says, these are the sound words. These are the words he's going to go on and identify that were given to him by God through the spirit who indwells us. We're to therefore keep them and use them in our life in order to understand what it is God has commanded of us. Very important. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, Paul says, talking to Timothy, in faith and love which are in Christ. Not apart from Christ, but this faith and love is in Christ. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That good thing, that redemption, that calling that God has given to you, he has extended to you as not only a believer, but giving you the grace and the gifts to share those things in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, we have looked at the history of the English Reformation as a precursor to say, why is this confession so important? How did we get to that point of the necessity of an Anglican church, of all things, has gotten a hold of the Reformation, and all of a sudden, we're being driven in our thinking to why we were brought to this place of writing a confession, when that really wasn't the original intent. The intent was just to fix the 39 articles of the Church of England, and the Puritan divine says, that's impossible. They can't be fixed. Too much bad theology. Much more needs to be explained in detail. And the Scots, especially, who had already developed their own confession, came even as non-voters. And yet, if you'll go through and look at the various debates and stuff, you'll see they carried the day. They had some of the most brightest young men in their late 20s, early 30s, just absolutely devastated 
the men who were there to debate these issues. And they won the day, and we thank God for that. And so it was that we seen that, then we looked at the necessity, importance of creeds, why it's so important to the church, what they established for the church, and the fact that they're built off an exegetical understanding of various texts from the scripture that are seen from beginning to end. Normally, not every text is used. That would be a book so big you couldn't probably carry it. But case in point is the text that had clarity spoke to the point. If you remember in hermeneutics, we referred to that to as a specific analogy or a particular analogy. Whereas things that are done by implication are general analogies, and you may have things that are specific, general, or by good and necessary deduction, extrapolated on out from those principles of truth. And so it was the divines came together and they began to determine what is it that God wants from us. He wants us to build a church that he has commanded of us. We do this because God commands us to do it. And we want it to be both doctrinally pure as well as in its orthopraxy, which would include both government and the way that we live out this Christian life, to make it a church that is as near to the heart of God, to his own word, that we may be able to do that very thing. So the Westminster divines met. Yes, you had Scottish commissioners There were Irish that were also invited, but they did not show up. Americans were invited back in that day, but the Americans were afraid of getting caught in England in their war that was ongoing and issues and problems, and they figured they would get trapped and not be able to get back home. But this was especially an English attempt to fix Church of England, an Anglican church, an Episcopal church, if you will, because the church had not righted itself according to Scripture. They got a part of the Reformation, but they did not complete the Reformation as they should have. Well, we move on. We're going to be expounding upon the nature of this confession because we are now at the door of the confession itself and we're uh, at last day, Lord's Day, we looked at the intro to this sermon. This Lord's Day, I want us to take the time to read out of chapter 1 before we get into this doctrinal explication of the Westminster Confession, we're going to look at chapter 1, section 1. Now, understand there's going to be some chapters that we'll maybe spend only one or two weeks on, depending on how important it is, because really this is only designing the foundation to say, now this is what we should believe in defending our faith, and giving an answer for people who ask, but the hope That is within us. But the Westminster Divines, in their teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Scripture, chapter 1 and section 1, wrote this. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God, as to leave men inexcusable. Yet, 
are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and the propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and of the world, to commit the same holy to writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. Now, looking at this aspect of the confession, we are going to look at the exposition itself of what these words say and what they are implying so that you understand the certainty of what was written. And then finally, when that's over, not today, it'll be next Lord's Day, we will look in particular at this area of what is really the emphasis of section one. What is it it wants us to understand that is so principally set forth that we cannot ignore what they, the divines, wrote in this section. Well, the divines wrote concerning this first section, and in the whole chapter itself, concerning the issues of general and special revelation. If we could, let us look then at their thoughts on general and special revelation as is stated, especially in chapter 1, section 1, which we just read. Let's begin with the first clause. Although the light of nature... Now... We would probably not say it that way today. But by the light of nature, what they meant was, or they were speaking to, what we call the Imago Dei, the image of God in man. Better stated, theologically, man as the image. It's not the image just somewhere in man. Man himself is the image of God, by which it means he is able to communicate and obey the commands of God. And also we need to note, man is a part of what they're defining as this area of general revelation. Very important to understand Man, as the image of God, the only thing in general revelation, that is the created order of all things, the flora, the fauna, the man, all the things that have been created, all the universe, of all these things, man is the only one who is the image of God. Man is the only one who has been given in that sense, an intellect with a morality that we'll see as we go on in our teaching that is innate in man. That's what we're talking about. It's not acquired knowledge. There is an innate knowledge God has placed within man prior to the fall, after the fall, having corrupted man and his ability and willingness to accept the truth of God. Rather, we're going to be told in Romans 1, he is willing to pervert it. He'll pervert that knowledge that he has, and he will worship four-footed creatures, but he will not worship the true God. 
And so it is, we have this section of general revelation. You and I are a part of general revelation. It's what makes us religious. It's the, as it were, the seed of divinity within us, the seed of religion. It's why men are by nature religious. It's why all philosophical worldviews are religious. Even atheists, which there is no such thing as atheists, because even in the atheist system, they have elevated man as the God. And so none of them are not religious. Every world philosophical system, every ideology of man, is driven by a religion. That is the Imago Dei in in man. That is to say, man as the image of God. Man being created a thinking, reasoning, being endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, our confession tells us. And so it is. There is a sense There is, within that limited ability, and understand, man wasn't created to be God, nor to be able to think exhaustively like God. He's a finite creature. Created the image of God to communicate with God, but that would require him to have certain apparatuses within him, to think, to speak, to hear, to comprehend to respond in thinking and speaking back. There is, therefore, this sense of epistemological awareness. Since man was created in the image of God and is in the midst of the created order of things which we call the light of nature. That's comprehensively looking at what they're saying. We are the light of nature. That is the Imago Dei, us being made in the image of God. We have an ability that is innate in us. We were created a reasonable being, reasonable. When we go to the section on the doctrine of man, we are called a reasonable creature endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, meaning we have been given a certain amount of ability to think, to reason, to respond, to speak. Nothing else in creation, we are told, is capable of that in that way, except we know that the animal kingdom has within it We believe the life force of the angelic host, which gives it that appearance of awareness. You know, when you sit and you talk to your dog and he turns his head like this and like this, and he's listening to everything you say. There is a soul of some sort undefined in the animal kingdom. We see evidence of that when the dog goes to sleep and he's dreaming about chasing a rabbit. And you've seen them lay there and their feet start moving and they kind of are yelping. And you go, what are they doing? He's dreaming. To dream requires some kind of a cognitive, whatever it is, soul. But what he don't have, he is not creating the image of God, number one, Number two, he does not have an innate morality. Thus, he cannot sin. Yet, the Bible tells us that all of God's animal kingdom know the creator God. Doesn't tell us how, just says that it does. I don't think we'll ever discover that. But that is the case in point. 
which is what develops our view in theology about why we don't needlessly kill God's creatures. Very important. They have at least some sense of cognitive ability, but we don't know what it is. They can't talk to us. They can only bark at us. And when they bark at each other, I guess there's something in the bark that tells the other dogs, warning, whatever, probably very base at best. But we are different. We have the light of nature. We have the image of God. Or better, we are that image of God. We have been given an innate sense in which we have both a cognitive ability and the ability to think God's thoughts after him. But in the garden, that innate ability is not seen that Adam was able to function out special revelation, rather he of necessity needed God to speak to him and tell him, of this tree you may not eat, but of these trees you may eat. Of all the trees in the garden, except this one, he could not have derived that from creation. Creation doesn't speak. It has no cognitive ability. Though there are passages of scripture we will probably clearly be looking at in the when it says if the rocks could speak. Yeah, but they don't. Would they declare the glory of God? Everything would. Everything has the fingerprints of God's handiwork. We're not looking at the attributes, we're looking at the handiwork, and we're looking at an ordered, rational mind that has put everything together to function exactly the way it does. But the real key element there is we are the ones who have to look upon it and interpret it and try to understand it. And we know we do not have the mind for that. It takes revelation from God. Takes it in the form of the fact that we are a reasoning being created in the image of God and also that we are capable after the fall to be led by the Spirit of God through the writing of the word that he has given us and to teach us what exactly these things rightfully mean so that we may have Literally, the revealed will of God upon which we can contemplate. So man is a, what? Religious being. Created as the image of God. This man, of course, we have just said very clearly, is a part of the created order of things. Having been a part of that created order of things, of which it's not specific to his nature or being to understand the work of the Redeemer, that's impossible. but rather that alone will come from God's special revelation, God speaking, revealing his will, that which eventually comes what we call the word of God, the Bible. And so it is that we turn next to this second clause here. Man, image of God. Man as the image of God. What is he? A reasoning, rational being endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 
There is nothing wrong. Man can think logically. Man is created to function in a way that would be able to understand God, his orders, his instructions about things. So man can think rational. He can think logical, consistent arguments that are consistent from beginning to end. He could measure them. That's man. But this man is placed in a garden, which is a part of God's created order. And so it is the second clause. And the works of creation. What do they mean by and the works of creation? They're speaking of the order of creation, meaning all things physical and in a sense spiritual. And in particular, man and physical things in time and space. That's what they're referring to. Look around you. Look outside, out the windows. That's God's created order. That is his works of creation. And the works of creation clearly are what? And a part of that what? Rational order of all things. All things have their place. All things work together. All things have a purpose, a teleological understanding given to it by God. And thus, when we look at the created order of all things, not only here on earth, look into the heavens. Everything has a purpose. Now, what are some of the purposes? Well, in the older days, we looked at the universe to do what? To understand the nature of the seasons, that we would be able to prepare ourselves for planting seasons, for harvesting seasons, all those kind of things. They were used, very useful. Almanacs, we called them. Farmer's almanacs. There was a lot that we could do with these things, but what's important to know, the totality of all things created does bear the handiwork of God. As it were, they have his fingerprints upon it. But that doesn't mean you can reason from the fingerprints apart from Scripture back to the God that is specifically taught in the Bible. It cannot be done. And we'll talk about why that is impossible. So anyway, that's the works of creation. Then they say, and providence how things are essentially determined and the order of their function, their meaning. Creation demonstrates the teleological nature of the eschatological determination. Literally, the decree of God in time and space. And we call this, I think, rather better, the created order of things. Everything has a purpose. Everything has an ultimate end. And that's what they're talking about. The ultimate order of things that come to pass. All events. All the things in the purpose of creating man to the final consummation of history and man. So they were very, what, comprehensive about this. And then they go on into this fourth clause. They say, they, what, this light of nature, the created order of things, creation, the works of creation, and we're talking about the created order of things, in God's providence, 
do so far manifest. Manifest means to display, or it exhibits, if you will, the order of creation. When you look at it and you see how it is functioning, it displays a rational order because it is created by a rational God in that sense. It doesn't display the attributes of God, but it displays the handiwork of a God who has those kind of attributes that are capable of making these things come to pass. Man to be created in the image and to be religious. Creation itself, the way things are structured and put together, the reason why we can literally do a legitimate science and find out how things function with great specificity. And then the very aspect of history of providence, of the events throughout life. We can study them and know what they manifest, they exhibit, they show, they demonstrate the order of creation. And as we shall see, all this handiwork of God, with all of its fingerprints, in the function of the order of man and things are designed to still point us in a direction that says something greater than man had to come up with. What? Who is it? What is it? Anything less than the specificity of the God of the Bible as he is defined will be idolatry. And so we must ask, where does God begin to reveal to man who has sinned against him in the garden? Where does he begin to reveal the truth of his purpose creating man as his image? In the aspect of the works he has created, the purposes of which they function in this life. And what are all these events in the providence of God's time and space coming to pass for a purpose, an end in all things, which we would say that we believe, Scripture is clear, they are all for the glory of God. So anyway, they say what? Do so far manifest. Well, next... From that, we derive, in the next clause, what are they manifesting? These things. The goodness, they manifest the goodness. They manifest the wisdom that is behind them and the power of God. The fact that these things are all held together, they have a constance to them Trees just don't fall apart without some kind of purpose and order in doing them. They just don't disappear. You can burn them down, but there's a principle behind that. It can die of old age. There's a principle behind that. All a part of God's created order. Here you see the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God being demonstrated in all these things. In weather and everything, it's being shown over and over. Why? What is it saying to us? We are not here in the corner of a universe, not knowing how we got here, except somebody believes that we were a part of the ooze, and somehow we were amoebas, and we came out, and we became fish, and then we got onto land, and all that silly nonsense of evolution and everything, with no meaning which would mean the only meaning that man can have his life is what you would give it. And when you cannot give it meaning, you might as well die. And that's why a lot have done that. No, it's the goodness, the power, and the wisdom of God. Goodness. 
is demonstrated in how that God interacts with his creation, which implies his providential care of his creature and the rest of creation. Wisdom is the manifestation in the selection of proper ends with the proper means for the accomplishment of God's created order of things to their ordained ends and the means decreed to meet the purpose or, if you will, the teleological determination of God's eschatological plan for the created order of things. Which includes, by the way, the redemption of man. Thus, a biblical, theistic, designing mind who thinks things into existence, but always maintains their existence because God's mind thinks one comprehensive thought, and there is no such thing as probability with God. Demonstrate. Never changes. Everything has its cycle and its structure. God has planted. No matter what man does to it, it comes back. It is in the order of God's creating providence. And that's what it means. This isn't telling you that God himself, what his wisdom is, that it's omniscient, uh, that it's based on a knowledge of all things and how that works. It's just saying that in this you could see wisdom. Well, why not? How do you do that? Well, I was created as the image of God. I'm capable of being able to derive. These things have set patterns and function. There was something greater than man involved. They could not have evolved and posited this structure, this order of things (coughs) based on evolutionary theory of randomness. No such thing could happen. And then he says the power. Power means that everything viewed in the created order along with the innate idea of divine being speaks to a divine being who is the supreme power and authority, especially in our view and observation of historical events in time and space. Every event in time and space is a demonstration of God's power. You cannot stop the appointed ends. What God has decreed, man cannot undecree. He cannot alter the decree. And when you stand and you look at something and ponder it, you see there was a purpose, a means, and ends in which those things took place. So, what is the purpose of this? Certainly is not specific. It's very general in nature. Well, they go on to say in the seventh clause, expressly what the purpose of this was. To do what? As to leave men inexcusable. The result of the previous mentioning of the manifestation of God's goodness, wisdom, and power. The divine state that man is held accountable without excuse before God. That in them is enough of the wisdom and the goodness and the power of God. That man cannot escape, that he should. And to some extent, Of course, we have here again no witness to this. Before the fall, he should have had a greater comprehension of these things. But we don't know. We don't have a narrative that tells us that. But it does tell us it's not exhaustive. But, you know, a part of man's nature is being able to go and look at the fish on the bottom of the river and go, Wow, look at the fish down there. I wonder how they live down there. I know what I'll do. I'll go down and swim with the fish. 
Well, I got news. If you try to stay underwater, you're going to find out you're not a fish. And you know what that means? That means Adam would have died and you and I would not be here. So, you see, he had some aspects of knowledge, being in the image of God, being, as it were, seeing these wisdom and power and stuff. He functioned in a way that we cannot function because all that happened before the fall. Yet not exhaustive, has to be given details. He walks every evening to converse with God. I don't think they were telling jokes when they were walking in the garden together. No doubt, since man is still man, God was instructing him on things. We can never lift man above that very thing. However, what is the means in which they are inexcusable? How are we left that way? I believe the issue lies upon the result of man's inability to know God, as they say, in that way. Meaning to know him in the specificity of his real nature and being. And as a result of the failed rebellion to acknowledge the one true God, the one who has the sole right of determining what is right, And what is wrong? The one true God of creation and redemption. As man is a creature created by that God is to obey him. To think his thoughts purely after him. To listen and reason the way God teaches him to reason. I believe this failure and the holding of man inexcusable must be tied to an epistemological issue. That being general revelation. The first is that which leaves man inexcusable. Before God, which is the rejection of God as creator, especially man as the image. Second is the rejection of God, of his created order of things, both internal and external witnesses, but that which we call from what? General revelation. That's what it means. It's general. The content is very general. It's not specific to a specific end. These two things are sufficient to hold man inexcusable. That's what the divines were saying. That's all God needed. Man is still accountable. He still has to give an answer. He is not. Instead, he has gone into rebellion. And those two things that God created for him generally, in which he came in, not talking specifics yet, but in that way, he is still held accountable. Robert Raymond states, the confession begins by asserting that although all men and women know God at some level of consciousness or unconsciousness because of God's revealing work above within them, that is the light of nature within men and women and all around them in both his creation and providential care Yet this general revelation is not sufficient to give them the knowledge of God that is necessary for salvation. All it does is leave them in their idolatry without excuse. Romans 20 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible things are clearly seen. From the Greek word here, meaning behold fully, or if you will, figuratively speaking, implying that they are distinctively apprehended. Being understood, he says, Paul, that is comprehended from the fact that man is made as the image of God. He has the idea of religion or God or divine, if you will, within him. 
by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Godhead, by the way, simply means divinity. That's what it could have been translated. That man is what? God, he knows what? Even his eternal power and divineness. So it is translated here, Godhead, which is basically pointing to what? The one true God. Man may not acknowledge him as the one true God, but it is the one true God that we're talking about. The Trinitarian God of the Bible. So that they are without excuse. They have a comprehension of the created order of things. Man is included in that, what we call general revelation. But note carefully, however, it is not sufficient to give that knowledge, and this is the ninth clause we're looking at, to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. General revelation is so general, it doesn't have the specificity to reveal the mind of God in these things, even in man, per se. A comprehension of some kind, yes, yeah, some kind of cognitive uh, level of understanding, but it's general. It's general in nature. But it's not sufficient to give that knowledge, that's the key word here, knowledge, not what is required to consciously no, to think epistemologically. Who cannot give that knowledge of God, not of his son. He's talking about salvation. There is a knowledge that requires us to have of God as the triune God in order to come to redemption. And of his will, the will of the triune God, the Trinity, which is necessary unto salvation. That knowledge both of God, the person, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that knowledge that is revealed about his will and what God demands and expects from man in his salvation. Creation leaves men without sufficient knowledge of God concerning his being and the nature of this God. Man has this innate knowledge, a divine essence or existence, but not a knowledge that reveals the true God of the Bible, which can be evidenced by man's attempt to define God in the history of philosophy. And look, as John Calvin says, at every turn, it is not the God of the Bible. It's not the Trinitarian creator, redeemer God but it's a God created in man's image. Just the opposite. Nor can man know of his will, which are both necessary for salvation, but they are yet enough to hold men, what? Inexcusable before the creator God and redeemer God. Now, I've run out of time. We will come back to this. And look at the 10th clause where it says, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times to reveal himself to us. And we'll talk about what that means. But do you see, they put a lot in this section. This is just their first opening salvo about doctrine, about what man needs to know. Why is it necessary to write a new confession the old one was insufficient. It could not explain all of these things that God has revealed to us. And thus, we need a new one. We need a better one. We need one built on the solid rock foundation of the word of God. There is no other foundation upon which the divines thought they could build that theology and that church, the practical, ecclesiastical side of things, 
in order to draw the church closer to the word of God without simply ditching the 39 articles and writing this doctrine that they have set forth in all of its splendor that we call the Westminster Confession of Faith. Thank God for these men. Thank God that they wanted to really get into the essence of this thing and say, what exactly are we talking about here? What is it we have not yet quite grasped? What is it we have gone to so much, but we've really denied the very things that we have not really understood properly? Thank God for such men. Men who want to begin where God begins to explain to man how this failed and what it meant and what is the way back to God and what is the mind of God concerning these things, but in particular to what? To the salvation of his soul. God gave us a word a word that he committed to writing by which we could know these things, know them with specificity. Specificity. So that we do not commit idolatry and we worship the wrong God. But we can know who the true God is and we can worship him in the fullness of his revelation and glorify and honor him. There's the beauty of what they've started with here. And I'll get into more detail of things that are very important for you to realize. A lot of people look at this and try to argue this is an evidential statement concerning the existence of God. It is not. Not at all. And the divines put that to rest on a very simple basis but we'll look at that when we get to it. Let us look to the Lord our God in prayer at this time and thank him that he has given us the word. He has directed us and how that we are to live our lives according to that word that reveals God, reveals his will, reveals his son, reveals us the very end of time and its meaning that we can glorify him as the one true God. That's all this is all about. To ensure that you are on the narrow path and not the wide path. Shall we pray?